Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Global Boomers. For every Friday, we explore stories of international business and the people who make them happen. I'm Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International, your host. And today's guest is Thomas Fuller, whom I will introduce in, in a moment. Uh, before we start, and as most of you know, we start each segment with a running segment called Faux Pas Fridays, where we present a funny mistranslation or blooper that does not quite convey the professional image that your company wants to present. Uh, and since today's guest is involved in the market research field, I thought it would be appropriate to give an example of how meanings in English can change when words or phrases are used uh, incorrectly or in an incorrect word order. So an actual reason for an auto insurance accident stated in English, I was driving along the road when I looked over at my mother-in-law and hit a tree. Today's guest is Tom Fuller. Uh, Tom is a 25-year veteran of the market research sector and is VP of business development at the firm Fluent Research in Manhattan. Uh, Tom has worked in five countries on three continents and has traveled extensively around the world. He's also served as interim CEO of a virtual reality multimedia park in Italy and as executive producer of Shopping America, a home shopping channel in the Republic of San Marino, which is one of the smallest countries in the world, totally surrounded by Italy. Welcome, Tom. It's delight delightful to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, so before we begin, perhaps you could uh, plunge in and tell us a bit of uh, your background and how you gained your international experience. Well, that makes it sound like I had a plan. Um, I joined the Navy out of high school and they trained me in uh, electronics and cryptography. And that gave me enough uh, technological experience to be of value to the market research community uh, once I started working uh, in that sector. And so, of course, my client base at the very beginning uh, were multinational technology companies. And I started traveling uh, as a result of that. And uh, pretty much the winds of fortune blew me across the world. Uh, again, I, I didn't have a plan. It just happened that way. Uh, I ended up owning my own company for uh, about nine years. And that I had offices in Shanghai and in the UK and in San Francisco. And that gave me the opportunity to visit a lot of countries as well as living in a few others. Um, and do you speak other languages uh, or, or just English? No, I, uh, I'm fluent in Italian, um, barely functional in Spanish and French, and I can uh, get around a little bit in Mandarin. Excellent. Um, and tell us about some of your experiences and I guess some of your most successful ventures as you've launched them abroad. Well, uh, the, the company I had in my own uh, was fairly successful uh, in China and in the UK. Didn't get much traction in the US, uh, too much competition. There's about 30,000 uh, companies in the US that have the same NIC code as we do. Um, and but we did well in, in China, uh, hooking up with a, a mobile uh, telecom operator and using them as a panel for market research purposes and doing some work for the department for the education uh, 
uh, sector in the UK. And that was a lot of fun. Um, my very first experience in market research was interesting to say the least. Um, we were evaluating uh, an e-commerce website for a very large computer manufacturer. And it turned out uh, that they were trying to roll out their first all-in-one product, a, a printer, fax, copier, and scanner uh, on their website. And at the end of the research, it became clear that uh, their brand was so popular, they didn't really even need an e-commerce website. So I suggested to them that they put uh, their, their new brand new toy on a, a site that had just changed its name to eBay. And they did that and it was a huge success. And uh, they told me later that it got them $138 million in uh, incremental revenues. And they bought me a very nice glass, piece of glassware as a, as a thank you. That's great. Um, and this was a market research company in the UK, did you say? No, it was in the US at the time. It was on Silicon Valley. Mm. Okay. Um, and it's not your current company. It was another firm. Oh, no, no. This was, this was the very first market research company I worked with. Um, very interesting. Um, you mentioned uh, that, you, um, I don't know if it was this first company you worked with, uh, but the company was in, the, in China and the UK. That was my company. I, I, was, I started a company. I ran a company called Enquire Services for nine years. Huh. And there's a perception in the United States often that it's very tough to do business in China and it takes a very long time because you have to cultivate relationships and build trust and so forth. Um, so when you launched it, did you have immediate success or did you have to build it up over many years? Um, it didn't take as long as you might've thought. I, I, we were in business for about eight months before things started clicking for us. Um, but after that, it went pretty well. But that was due more to connect, luck and connections than, than any particular skill on my part. Okay. And was there anything about doing business in China that was different in terms of, you can, for example, you can ask Americans certain questions that perhaps you couldn't ask the Chinese? Uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of difference uh, in between the two cultures. Uh, in China, you, you pretty much have to be pretty patient and let things unfold at a different pace, at, the, at a pace set by the Chinese client as opposed to your own business needs. And if you could adapt to that and be patient with that, then it goes okay. But I found myself many times in front of a client who had basically become a billionaire uh, without the help of market research. And pretty much the first question I was asked on more than one occasion was, I made a billion dollars without market research. Can you really explain to me why I need you? <laughs> How did you answer that? Just, well, where is your next billion coming from? Oh, that's a great answer. Right. I didn't use that on the first one. I, that was the lesson I learned from the first time it happened. That's great. Um, when you say that just to let things unfold in China, um, in, in market research in the United States, there's normally some questions that the interviewer is asking and, you know, you can either ask it in that order or skip around to elicit the answers that you're looking for, or the, the, the answers to the questions that you're looking for. Um, is it the same in China or is it a totally different approach? 
it depends on what kind of research you're conducting. Before I was referring to actual business negotiations with prospective clients. When you're interviewing Chinese people, either business people or consumers, if you're doing a quantitative survey, you pretty much stick to uh, an exact list of questions. Um, but in qualitative research, like focus groups or in-depth interviews, then you pretty much have to structure things around the individual sensitivities of the people you're talking to. And that's not just culture specific. It's the same is true in almost any environment. But in China, there is a certain tendency to be more reserved and to keep certain sectors of questions off limits that wouldn't be in America. And what kind of questions would you keep off limits in China? Um, there, in America, in, in Western cultures, people will answer things on subject to, unless you're talking about their finances or their sex lives. But in China, there, in addition to those, um, things about anything that's close to uh, cultural or political sensitivities are pretty much off limits. Um, and you, you, you have to kind of steer around uh, whatever the sensitivities of the news of the day is. Um, you know, it, it's pretty much an autocratic culture. It's got a lot of uh, censorship. I, I love the Chinese people. They're absolutely wonderful. Uh, but they're in an environment that encourages uh, reserve, so to speak. Mm. Um, <laughs> you said no questions about finances or sex lives, um, but in uh, I know that in certainly in Japan and I think in other Asian cultures too, it is common or it's at least appropriate um, for people to state uh, about finances. You know, my rent is this, my salary is that, and it's, it's more open than it would be in our country. Yeah. Is that the same? Is that, is that true in China and elsewhere? Not so, not so much. They, uh, the people who don't have a lot of money don't really want to admit it. And the people who do have a lot of money really don't want, don't to, want to admit it. Right? They clearly keep it secret from the tax authorities and others. No. Yeah. Interesting. Um, what about other countries that you've dealt with in terms of the interview approach and the market research approach, how would it um, be different? The, the, the more, when I was looking at your, uh, watching some of your other podcasts, which are great, by the way, um, what really came to, th to my mind was the cultural similarities between China and Italy. Oh. Um, that for some, well, I, it's pretty logical, uh, but they have a lot of things in common culturally speaking, uh, including sensitivity about finances, not so much about uh, sex lives, um, but very careful about talking about money. Um, they, they both seem in some ways uh, sort of um, handicapped by the depth of their cultures and the, the long, rich history that they have in both places. Um, there's just a lot in common between those two places, the emphasis on family, uh, you know, the somewhat uh, pronounced distrust of government. Uh, it's, it's that that is the thing that struck me the most uh, about all of my international experiences was just when you're in China, you're reminded of Italy and vice versa. That's fascinating. I've never heard anyone make those, that comparison before. That's, that's really interesting. Um, when you say handicapped by long history, how do you mean? 
Well, um, for example, in the arts and in culture, uh, they seem to not be moving forward as much, except in the last five or six years, it's changed. Uh, because it seemed like they might have felt that there was no point because the classical arts and literature and, and uh, plastic arts uh, were so dramatic and wonderful that, you know, how could you hope to uh, equal like the poetry of Poe or the, uh, the art of Michelangelo or Raphael? So is it more sort of replicating past masters? Or being intimidated by them. Oh. And therefore not creating new and vibrant forms? Well, it's, it's changing now, both in Italy and in China. It's in the process of changing. But there's this kind of gap where, you know, English literature and French photography, all of that was really dynamic and going forward, where Italy and China kind of were at a standstill. And I think that was one of the reasons. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, research in other countries, um, how, how is that similar? How is it different than in the U.S.? Um, recruiting people to participate uh, is easier uh, in China uh, and more difficult in Italy uh, than in the U.S. In China, it's because of a relative newness. What happens with market research is that the response rate declines over time. People are happy to participate in market research at the beginning of their online experience or the first time somebody calls them on the telephone. But after a few tries, they get a little bit bored with it and they're harder and harder to engage. Um, in China, because of the relative newness of access to uh, the internet and even mobile telephony, um, they are still more willing to participate um, than in the U.S. Uh, and in Italy, uh, it, it was strong at the very beginning, but then it declined very quickly. Hmm. Um, to, so that means you have to constantly look for a new source of interviewees, of participants. That is, uh, that's true in every culture, but it's more pronounced, say, in the United States and in Italy. Hmm. Interesting. And does it depend on the subject, whether it's consumer or business or any specific subject? It, it actually, uh, the, the phenomenon is the same, although the rates are a little bit different. Uh, business to business research, when you want to talk to a CEO, you're just going to have to pay a lot of money to get them to give you an hour of their time um, and then maybe take them out to lunch and, and you know pick them up in a very nice car to take them to lunch. Uh, for the consumers, um, it depends on the subject matter. Um, and if, you, if you're lucky and you, you're, you're happy, you're doing research on a very top topic, then it's not so difficult. If it's something obscure, then you really have to grind the sausage wheel pretty hard. Hmm. Um, what about in other parts of Europe? How does that differ? Um, France is kind of similar to Italy. Germany is actually uh, pretty easy. The Scandinavian countries, they're also pretty easy to, uh, to get to deal with. The Benelux countries uh, are a little bit harder. And then the southern, you know, the, the southern med uh, is a little bit difficult. 
Okay. Um, and what, what makes it different or what makes it harder in these countries? Um, in, in like in Greece and in Spain, there's still a problem of a digital divide. A lot of the people you want to talk to don't have access to the internet for online surveys. And they're, uh, they're not really uh, happy about answering questions on the telephone. Is it because they're non-trusting or for another reason? I think it's more that, that they don't want to spend the time. They actually have a life and it doesn't include me. And do you ever offer to pay people? Always. And they still won't, they still are reluctant to do it. We probably don't pay enough. That's on us. But if somebody, you know, if a client wants to do a survey of 5,000 people in six different countries, um, they have a budget that includes how much you're going to pay for each respondent. Right. And that budget, in order to win the project, the budget has to be kind of low. And so you have to kind of really push to get enough people to respond in some countries. Because of the nature of market research is what you just said, to get people to respond and, um, well, and I've got another, other reasons. Do you feel that the research is often accurate or do you feel it's skewed? If it is drawn up properly, that depends on the skill of the market researcher. Um, if you draw up a questionnaire correctly and if you make sure you are speaking to the right people and you engage with them on terms that are comfortable for them, then yes. If the most common problem with market research is always, always not finding the right person to talk to. If you, and if, if you blow that, then you're out of luck. If you do a sloppy, quick survey that you didn't spend enough time on, if you don't have the right translators to get that have the cultural nuance um, correct in each different country, you know, there's a lot of pitfalls. But if you do everything correctly, then yes, you can trust the results. Um, you know, companies very similar to ours predict election results very well. Um, they can tell what movie is going to be the most popular, what new video is going to be uh, rise to the top of the charts, and what Netflix should be doing next. So if you do it right, it works. Very interesting. Um, you mentioned not having the right translators. Um, Yes, our language translation agency has translated surveys, um, mainly in this country, but of ethnic groups such as Chinese to English or Spanish to English or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and they fill in the blanks and, you know, and so forth. So, yeah, that, that is very, very interesting, too. Um, and you're right that a, a slight nuance can change, can skew the meaning. Yeah. If it's done right or done wrong. Yeah, yeah like in the Hispanic community, you know, if you're doing a survey in Spain and also in Mexico, you, you're not going to have the same language in, in both of them. Right. Yeah. And the different words, of course, have different meanings and the nuances can be different. Yeah. Um, do you get involved with political research? Your firm? Uh, rarely. We do well, an awful lot of socially relevant research for nonprofits and big associations. Um, we do thought leadership work for organizations like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Um, so we do things that are that are affected by politics, 
But we don't do like political polling, like who do you like better in the next election? We don't do that. Um, I'd received a lot of surveys in the mail and sometimes by phone. And I find that they're so despicably written and that they're totally skewed. <laughs> no. What do you think of this, the ultra-liberal policy perpetuated by this, by this party? See, that's not market research. That's solicitation for donations. Yeah, and of course, it's made in the form of a survey. Sure. Um, and very often when I get these um, political market research calls, I will tell them at the end, um, I've been involved in the market research fields for, for many years and in the marketing field, and your survey is 100% invalid because of the way that you phrase the questions. You're not asking questions that ask new that are soliciting neutral answers. You're obviously asking questions that are soliciting one point of view or a specific uh, result. And therefore, when you publish this, it, you know, it's totally misleading and it's totally wrong. And it's, uh, it's push polling and it's for uh, a specific purpose. And it is as far away from market research as you possibly get. Yeah, and then people actually believe, believe these results, which is worse. Um, what about other countries like uh, in Southeast Asia or other parts of the world in which you've worked? Um, do the cultures affect then how people would respond? Um, to a certain extent, yes. And it, but it, again, it comes back to the, to the same pillars of doing successful market research internationally, finding the right respondent, having the right survey instrument, which means the properly translated questionnaire and having the questionnaire constructed in a way that is most designed to engage the respondent. But that's different in every country. I mean, in Kuala Lumpur, uh, you're, if you're talking to Indonesians, you have to do things very, very differently, um, given not just, you know, like uh, Jakoto uh, being in charge has a certain, has had a certain impact on the, the outward look of people in Indonesia compared to prior administrations, but the economic situation has changed, which gives them a kind of a different viewpoint on a lot of the subjects. And you just have to be aware of those things when you, when you start to research. Same is true in Malaysia, Vietnam. Can you give examples of what you're referring to? Well, in light, I'd say Kuala Lumpur, I meant Jakarta. Malaysia. Uh, yeah. Um, I went to Jakarta uh, to do, basically to, to supervise focus groups with Indonesians. Um, and it was about consumer electronics goods. Um, and in preparing the survey, I had to get there a little bit early and make dramatic revisions to the focus group topic guide uh, because so many, so many consumer electronics items had been introduced just in the past two or three years. And so people were still... Um, overly influenced by the newness of technology they were experiencing. So I had to really adjust the, the topic guide for the focus groups to reflect that. And it basically turned a 90-minute focus group into about two and a half hours. Oh. Um, are these overseas sessions interpreted automatically? Usually, but what happens is they're, they're obviously recorded, then transcribed, then translated, but also in the back room where I'm watching the focus group, there is a dual trans, a dual interpreter that 
listens to them and basically gives me a running commentary. It isn't word to word, but it tells me what they're saying. So that if I have a question for the moderator of the focus group, I can put it on a piece of paper and send it into the room. Or if I want them to delve into a subject more deeply, I can just get the message in and and have it go go on that way. It's not perfect, but it works. Yeah. Um, And of course, people are, are, Answering in their native languages, right? Yeah. <laughs> Very fascinating. Um, are there any um, some difficulties with the actual translation that you're getting that uh, perhaps it's um, the question is misunderstood or what, the wrong words are used or the wrong concepts or something, and it's just a totally different meaning than what you expect? Not so much. The real problem that we find with translation, and we've, you know, um, we've experimented with all, a number of different translation agencies, and I've done a lot of experimenting over the 26 years I've been doing this, uh, is there are translation agencies that start by doing machine translation, that is basically uh, speech to text, and then they try to edit over the top of it. Right. And that does not go well normally. Um, well, I hate to say it, but to, to do a good translation, you need a person uh, that is listening to the recording and translating it word for word. And uh, I, much as I love Google and what they do, um, speech to text isn't quite there yet. Right. Well, the rule is that if you do use machine translation, which is the proper word for software translation, like Google Translate, um, you must have a human editor who speaks the native language and, of course, in this case, would speak fluent English and who understands and who is, in our case, has a master's degree in the art of translation and who speaks the subject of whatever the session is about so that the person understands the nuances and the concepts and so forth. And that works. You know, that works if... The human, the human editor is as qualified as you describe and has the time to actually do the job. Obviously, given deadline pressures and budgets that affect translation companies, they can't always deliver on that, that ideal. Right. And that's another reason why the research may be less than valid. That's true. Yeah. Um, I think you've said that you've worked in... Um, in Taiwan as well, is that correct? Yes, it is. Are there differences between China and Taiwan in terms of, I know you can't, in China you can't deal with political topics, of course, um, but are there other cultural differences between the two countries? Yes, there are, um, and which kind of is surprising um, given the closeness of the, of the two cultures. Um, it is. Obviously, Taiwan is more open and more willing to discuss subjects that might be almost taboo in mainland China. Um, But there is also a sort of a personal reserve. They are, um, uh, the Taiwanese, again, they are wonderful, wonderful people. Um, But they they tend to be a little bit more reserved and conservative. The Chinese, the mainland Chinese in the big cities are kind of ebullient and are experiencing this new, you know, economic growth and then getting these exciting jobs and new startups and all of that. Taiwan, I think you'd almost say they were more comfortable with sort of a 1950s attitude towards 
job security, you know, get, uh, taking care of business, um, getting married, having kids, and, and doing things in a more traditional fashion. Um, so I, that, those are the main differences that I know. Well, I think the mainlanders are also interested in, you know, marriage and kids and... Oh, yeah, if they can afford it. <laughs> they can afford it, yes. Um, but you're saying, well, let's use the word nouveau riche because the mainlanders are nouveau riche. Yeah, newly acquired and money is, again, fairly new to their culture, um, as opposed to the longer 70-year history of Taiwan, for example. Um, then that, that skews how people look at things? I think so, yes. That's very interesting. Um, what about, again, are there other similarities or differences with other countries that you've dealt with? Well, let's see. Um, I find the UK to be uh, about as different from America uh, as it is possible for another English-speaking country to be. Um, you know, the, the, the famous quote is that England and America are divided by a common language. Right. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I don't think the, the differences are linguistic, um, but I do find the English to be um, very different to Americans in a lot of important ways. Um, I so, think that the English are um, more, well, I don't want to say cynical, but skeptical. Um, they are more um, pragmatic. Um, they are, they tend to be very calm until they're not. <laughs> and then when they cross that line, you just kind of want to stand out of the way. Uh, Americans fly off the handle really quickly but uh, then seem to recover their equilibrium just as quickly. Um, and on the whole, I find the English to be, I hate to say this, and it's a gross exaggeration, they seem to be smarter. Mm. Interesting. Um, do you think they're better educated in that way or just more aware? Probably. Now, this is directly related to my job, especially where you know, I, I deal with fairly senior people that have a, a university education, um, which in England really means very, very smart. In America, it just means you went to a college and got a degree. Um, so that, that probably influences my opinion. Very interesting. Um, so are you talking about senior executives or are you talking about consumers? Well, on a business, in terms of the relationships I had, they mm -hmm. were business relationships, basically. So this is people research. Right? Yeah. No, 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 no. This is my clients trying to get people to do business with or the people, my clients uh, or my prospects. They were all senior people in, in, in um, established companies. The people I was conducting research with were ranged from consumer in both countries, ranged from consumers to, to business owners to like IT administrators and companies with more than 5,000 employees, et cetera, et cetera. And um, my experience is that saying somebody's educated in England has more worth than saying somebody's educated in America. Right. The yeah, the degrees mean more. Yeah. Um, and when you say, you've said the English, do you mean the British, including the Scots and the Welsh and the Northern Irish, or do you just mean the English? No, pretty much uh, all, of them, all of the above. Uh, there are some wicked smart people in Scotland. And some of the smartest people I ever met were from Wales. Oh, 
So you mean the British, not just the English. Right. Um, yeah, very fascinating. Um, is there ever, have you encountered diff differences in the way that words are used in different, in, in between British and American English? And oh, there, there's lots of them. And, you know, I, I think back to the, the movie Love Actually, where they're laughing about just the differences in pronunciation. There are wild differences in meaning as well. Uh, you know, there, there are vocabulary differences, but there are words, you know, what, you know, you say in, in American English that would get a real a stare in, Engl in England and vice versa. Uh, boy, now you're going to ask me for examples, and I, boy, I'm going to struggle to think of one. Well, that's okay. Um, had you come across any you know, comical issues in any other country, um, culturally or linguistically or anything? Well, uh, you know, actually, I heard something similar on a recent podcast that you did, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was invited to a family dinner in Italy, and I was new to the country, didn't speak Italian. I was visiting my brother's girlfriend's family, and there was, you know, they sat me down, and they brought out a plate of pasta, and it was wonderful, of course, and I ate it. And they said, wow, you must be hungry. Do you want some more? So, yeah, I'm hungry, sure. And that was just the prelude to a four-hour meal that had, like, eight different courses. And I was full of pasta by the time they came out with the second course. And, of course, to be polite, you just keep eating and eating and eating. And, boy, I didn't sleep that night. That's funny. But it wasn't a matter of wine. It was just a matter of pasta. Oh, uh, yeah. That's really good. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add or to clarify? One thing they, you know, given what's going on in the world today with war and inflation and all of that, I, my experience traveling internationally is, you, you, and you've heard me say it a couple of times during this interview, is how nice people are. Mm. And I have found that to be true everywhere I go, is that people are nice, decent human beings. And it's just, I hope we don't forget that. Yeah, that's very true. I found the same thing. That ultimately, at the core, people are nice and friendly, decent and helpful. Um, and, you know, kind and considerate. And especially if you're foreign in their country, then they may go out of their way to help you. A bit more in Taiwan. In Taiwan, if you are foolish enough to open a map, you will attract a horde of Taiwanese people <laughs> trying to help you get to where you want to go. They will walk you to your destination. Mm. That's great. I've heard that in other countries too. That's really wonderful. Yeah, I've done that when I see foreigners on the street in my city out in yeah. the United States. Um, I always go up and help them, and I, you know, sometimes they're they're um, delighted and sometimes they're, I wouldn't say offended, but you know, I would think I'm, I'm looking at my phone to figure this out for myself. I don't need your help. Yeah. <laughs> and it's probably an age difference or something of, you know, wanting to be helpful and relying on your technology. So, well, Tom Fuller, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, your wonderful insights and your help and your, um, your great expertise in the international market research field.
It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, this has been Philip Auerbach from Auerbach International. Our website is A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H-I-N-T-L.com. I hope you will join us next Friday for another edition of Global Gurus and their stories of international business. Thank you.